3: Welcome to
4: Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleenor. I'm your other host, Sarah Century, and today we have a very special guest, Ayola Solarin. Hi everyone. Hi, where can we find you online? I know where I find you, because I follow you on Twitter, but where would you like to be found? <laughs>
5: I would like to be found nowhere, but, um, <laughs> you know, pending that, um, Twitter is the best place to find me.
4: Excellent. What's your, <laughs> your name on Twitter? Oh, sorry,
5: yeah. of, of, again, I really don't want to be found. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, you bastards. <laughs> yeah, try and find me. It's the first half of my first name, Io Solarin. That's it, at Io Solarin. Excellent.
3: Awesome. We will also obviously put your handle in the show notes so people can find you even if you don't
5: want them to. (laughs) (laughs) Please please don't talk to me online.
3: (laughs) (laughs) This was my favorite. And that's the show, folks. Have a great day.
5: (laughs) It's just because I'm a raging moron. It's just, you know, there's no level of cool with me online. If I'm like online, it's extremely online and like the worst way it is pure nonsense 24 7
4: I feel like you're one of the people whose jokes I retweet the most though because you're really funny
5: (laughs) well well, okay thank you but I find I don't know I think I'm just quite ridiculous it is like very like it's just quite stupid and I'm, I'm okay with that but being witnessed online I think you know messes with that a little bit
4: it's like, why can't I just make these jokes into the void? <laughs>
5: honestly, honestly, why can't I?
4: I think about that sometimes too, though, because I'll make a joke that's clearly only meant for maybe like 20 people that follow me. And then all of a sudden you have this greater Twitter trying to interact with you. And right. it's like, no,
5: no, don't. Exactly. It's like you scream into the void and then the void retweets it. Is Yeah. It's a bit too close.
4: Yeah, <laughs> this is really a great promotional introduction. <laughs> <laughs> nobody find us and nobody talk to us. When you interact with my tweets, I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the end of this like episode, we're both gonna,
3: we're all gonna like make a pact of like we're gonna, let's go let's go delete our twitters. Let's do it. Like, yeah. This is it's over.
5: Full yeah offline lockdown. No interactions <laughs> ever. Sweet. (laughs) Yeah. The more I say it, the the, the, better. I'm like slowly convincing myself. I'm like, actually, yeah, maybe it's time.
4: (laughs) Maybe it is time, actually. (laughs) I've been thinking about it more lately, too, because there's just too much on Twitter sometimes. And you just kind of make a goofy joke, and people are just like, take it so literally and have to like get in your face about it and stuff. And you're just like, It's supposed to be the platform where nobody actually knows each other in real life that much, you know? Like, Facebook is the one where, unfortunately, we've met everybody that we're talking to. Yeah. (laughs) And then on Twitter, you're like, you're all a bunch of strangers. So we can just kind of joke with each other. And then it's like, well, that's actually not what that means. (laughs) It means that people are going to act like they know you even when they don't. But enough about me. Twitter. Enough about Twitter. (laughs) Enough Enough about about Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. Fuck you, Jack. (laughs) They
3: ruined our
4: fucking lives. Okay. Exactly. (laughs) On that note. I mean, I really like
5: children's (laughs) cartoons. Yeah. Well, this is what
4: happens. Every time we go to talk about Steven Universe, we have to curse a bunch of times. (laughs) We have to definitely talk about how much we don't like Jack of Twitter. And uh, that's just, it's part of the conversation. It's tradition. (laughs) It's actually, we have an
3: outline we're working from and we've achieved the first item. So, time (laughs) to move on to more curse words.
4: (laughs) Yes. So, I am the person who knows the least about steven universe (laughs) i've been catching up with it for this episode but i'm still pretty far behind on it i've only watched some episodes but i'm having a great time (laughs) what drew you to watching steven universe what got you into the fandom oh um
5: i heard about it when i was in my second year of uni that was so long ago now let's not get into that or maybe no maybe it was my final year of uni and honestly, it just, it had popped up on, just on the internet. Well, I've always kind of loved animation. So I was like, oh, this looks really great. I'll watch it. I and mean, because I I was in the UK at the time, I still am. So there wasn't really a channel to watch it on. I think it was, it only started airing on Cartoon Network, but no one has like more channels than five, really. That feels like quite like adventurous you just, have, you just have like the five channels and that's it. So I was like, hello online. Let's have a look. But I remember the first day I watched an episode of Steven Universe, um, me and my housemates got really, really high. We baked like a batch of brownies, but they were like very intense. I think someone was just like, oh, it'll be fine. And it wasn't, <laughs> it, it was fine. But also it was kind of like, oh God, we're not going to be able to like move for about 20 hours. <laughs> And I remember I was like, oh, I just need something really relaxing to watch because like everyone had been like obsessively rewatching Breaking Bad at the time as well. And I was like, I can't do like meth. (laughs) Like, no, I was like, no guns, no gangs. I have a thing about, um, I really don't like kind of like cartel crime genre. It's always, always, it's always very fraught. So I was just like, I just need something really calm, really relaxing I remember Steven Universe. I was like, okay, hey, great, I'll start it. I got about 10 minutes in and my housemate was like, can you be quiet, please? And I was like, what, I'm not saying anything. And she was like, you keep like mumbling. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> and then she and then she was like, you have to, it was like 10 minutes later, she was like, you have to stop. And I was like, what is it that I'm saying? And she just, and she was like, you just keep saying, this is the gayest thing I've ever seen. And I just kept <laughs> saying it on repeat over and over and over again. You know, I stand by it. It was like really gay, and yeah, and super I remember, gay. yeah, it's so gay. But I remember just being so fascinated about how a children's show could be that gay, and it felt so relatable in a very gay way. Like a, um, <laughs> I remember just just being just so like bemused by it, and really just like I just was like, this is great. I don't know how they managed to. Well, first off, I was like, I don't know how they managed to like, get this on television. I was like so surprised. That, um, they were kind of like, yeah, allowed to have these androgynous rocks, you know talking about love and you know being together. I just thought it was it was very it was very beautiful, and I think it came to me at a time when I was figuring out kind of my own my own kind of sexuality, I guess, so it was just like, I don't know, it was very comforting actually, at a time when i didn't I didn't really understand how much I needed it and how, how kind of relatable it was. I just knew it was something that was really engaging. And I felt really excited to be kind of witnessing something like that happening in animation. And it wasn't until maybe later on, I kind of was like, oh, I understand why this is it was a lot more kind of relatable than I first did. So yeah, that was my first time interacting with Steven Universe and I never looked back.
3: <laughs> yeah, I um, think that might be the only way to have a first time with Steven Universe as an adult is like blazed out of your mind. And just like your heart opens like a flower, right? (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my, I don't, what? They're so, everyone's so supportive and things are hard, but they're so good to each other. That's my experience. Yeah, it was just like,
5: so nice. It's so nice. (laughs) I just love how nice they are.
4: I do too, actually. Just as kind of a newcomer to the cartoon, I think that one of the appeals of it is that Even when there is conflict, they're always trying to see the best part of each other. You wrote that article that was kind of tying BoJack Horseman to Steven Universe. And I think even in the article, you're like, at face value, maybe not, right? But like (laughs) if you look a little deeper, I mean, I think that you're totally right. Because they're both about struggling with the legacies that we're left with, right? And the way that both of them do that you know Bojack Horseman is constantly rewarded for his terrible behavior and then he's like I want to maybe not be terrible and that's not rewarding <laughs> you know like that's hard and you don't get any kind of cookies for it I guess but with Steven Universe that's almost the main drive of the thing is just to get in touch with your legacy and try to reach out to others with the same forgiveness that you want to show to yourself? Maybe this is, I'm, as I say, I'm a newcomer, so you can tell me where I'm wrong on this,
5: but. No, I would agree. I feel like Steven Yew is very much about trying and it's about kind of like reaching out to people. I feel like a lot of the show is about connecting and it really is about kind of like strengthen the community. In that article I wrote, I didn't, I wanted to talk about that a bit more, but it's kind of, it's very much about kind of like the reform of the individual can't, Happen unless you have support in some way. You have to want to change, but you you do need an infrastructure that kind of assists you in doing so. But mm-hmm. yeah, so for me, it was it's very much about family um, and about community and learning and, and growing. It, yeah, for me, it's very much about change. And I think you know you even see that in the way the gems um, poof. I don't remember <laughs> like, the, the exact term for it, but
3: I think actually poofing is the exact term. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
5: Extremely gay again. Yeah. yeah.
3: Right? I'm like, they're like, we're gonna just use gay words to describe everything. Hopefully people will get it. Um, yeah, they poof and then they reform. And yeah, the way that their outfits change. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm like, yes, yes.
5: Yeah, I think it is, yeah, it's about I don't think necessarily evolution, but I think, yeah, just kind of tapping into different modes of, of oneself. You know, even, even if you think about the concept of a gem or like a precious stone, it's like there's so much light that reflects through them all you know, you look at them at a different angle. I think it's very much about kind of the multifaceted natures of of being and how you can be in different ways. I don't know, that's always always kind of what I've got from it.
3: I think you're right. And I think too, you know, when you think about where the gems come from, you know, the gem home world is about stasis. It's about everything, nothing ever changes, right? Like, We always do the same thing. It's always homogenous, right? Like the way that only rubies can, I'm trying not to ruin anything for Sarah, but also Sarah doesn't care about spoilers. (laughs) You know, only, only rubies can fuse with rubies. And then, you know, oh my God, what? Like someone can do that? And then they think, they're like, oh, it's Earth. Earth changes people. And then there's this moment where, you know, late in the series, Garnet runs into the off colors and she says, I thought it was Earth that changed us. And there's like a tear coming from her eye. I'm going to cry talking about it. And she's like, but you've always been there. This is a testament to how much queerness, she doesn't say queerness, but really it's about queerness, Mm -hmm. has always been able to survive even in fascist regimes, right? Yeah. And— Yes, Steven Universe is a children's show. And so like the fascist monsters who destroyed lots of people get a redemptive arc. They have to do a lot of work. We find out when we watch Steven Universe Future, right? Like that they're not just absolved the way that it maybe felt like they were at the end of the first series. Mm -hmm. And it's really powerful to say like we have the ability to change even when we think we don't. Change is really the only thing that it can save us and allow us to figure out who
5: we are. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And, you know, if we come back to the the diamonds, I think with everything that's been going on, there's been a lot of discussion about Angela Davis's work and her kind of talking about how we need to not necessarily think about punishment in, in the way that we've usually been thinking about it. And actually, I think that functions well if you're looking at the way the diamonds are treated in the show, because, yes, they they do get a redemption up, but again, they've had to change to continue in society because society has kind of moved... On from them. So while they haven't necessarily been punished in a kind of classic sense, I think they've had to readjust them quite dramatically to still kind of exist in society. So I think that's that in itself actually is quite nice. I mean, not necessarily that we have to forgive like fascists. You know, I, d- I don't think that's that's quite what they're saying.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think that's Rebecca Sugar's yeah. main yeah. <laughs> thrust. <laughs>
5: yeah. I don't, you know, that's not quite what's happening there.
3: I think. Part of what I'm hearing and what you're saying is related to, you have to look at their whole arc, which doesn't come to completion. Well, never really, right? Because the end of future is like dot, dot, dot. But Mm. in future is where we see their powers change. So the powers they've used to dominate, to quell, to control, they all morph. And so you see that. We often think of a person's powers in sort of these supernatural settings as being a static thing, like you're super strong and that's your thing. Yeah. And and Steven Universe is about change, like you said. And and so their powers change and they have to then live with, okay, I can do this. Now it's my job, it's my responsibility yeah. to repair the harm I have done over eons to people. And and you know, we even get to see them, you know, healing people who have been broken people they've broken we see them grappling with how do i heal this and and make amends and i think that's actually a really much more interesting question right than like cut off their heads and like eat the rich which i you know we live in a different reality than yeah, steven universe exactly. so i'm not saying don't eat the rich i'm i'm down but in this it's it's so fascinating to say like how do we take these beings that like are pretty much unkillable. The diamonds are huge, you know, like how are you going to kill a diamond, right? Like no one ever has. And so, okay, then if we're stuck with them, how do we let them grow and how do they become part of the solution or the series of solutions rather than the source of the problem?
5: Yes, exactly. Very much. And you're talking about responsibility and I feel like that again is a prime theme of the show as well. And it's like taking responsibility for yourself and also taking responsibility yeah for the community as well like even with developing something like little home world to make sure that kind of like gems have the option of not living on a home world learning how to kind of like function in the human world it is I think you know at its heart very much about community and how it should build and like you said like it shouldn't ever be in stasis so it's always kind of growing and changing and I think yeah it's a beautiful thing because I feel, you know, in, in the current society that we live in, it's, it's very individualistic. And I don't think Steven Universe has ever been like that at all. I don't think anyone's ever solved a problem on that show by themselves. It's always enforced that it's with the support of a team and a family. And I think that, you know, that is a message that we can carry now, very much so. Well, you know, through, through history, but very much so now when we're having to kind of rely on each other to, to keep each other safe. In a lot of situations, so you can you can see very much now how you know the emphasis on the individual just doesn't function to help anyone really at the end of the day. So yeah, I think that that's a great thing about it as well. um, Emphasizing kind of community and how we should be supporting each other. That's
4: interesting because I think that that's very true, right? Like you see a lot of narratives around. For me, one of the characters that struggles the most head-on with redemption is probably like Silver Surfer. And Silver Surfer is this character who is always just so alone. Yeah. Like so many times when you see this guy... You know, he's by himself, middle of space, (laughs) you know,
5: on his surfboard.
4: Yeah, always with his Robert Smith from The Cure lyrics in his head (laughs) happening. I am alone, you know, like totally ridiculous guy. But, you know, there's something to that. And there's always, I, I find a lot of those stories to be really profound. But it is interesting that even when Silver Surfer looks for forgiveness, he tends to do it in this kind of solitary way. For instance, we just talked about Silver Surfer Black pretty recently, which is all like a series about him kind of trying to confront all of the terrible things that he's done. And this is somebody who's committed literal genocide for reasons, but, you know, still has facilitated a lot of mass death. And his way of getting redemption was to fix something, but then it's also like he just does it kind of all by himself. So he's all by himself when he is Talking about forgiveness. And I remember reading that and just being like, but who's forgiving you? (laughs) Like, There's nobody around in this scenario, you know, like who is forgiving you? Certainly not the planets that, you know, view you as a harbinger of death, you know? So I do think that that's interesting how that conversation is changing because Silver Surfer, of course, is like a character from the 60s and how now we have shows where it's kind of progressing beyond that and we're kind of talking a little bit more about community accountability. So that's nice.
5: Yeah, and I, I also feel as well like it feels very straight and it feels very male to kind right. of deal with things like by yourself. I feel like, you know, the emphasis on community feels like a, it's a very queer thing I would say as well because you know kind of how being isolated is the worst thing for you you know there's there's so much emphasis on the queer community and it's for a reason it's because you know we're we're much stronger together and I think that message is very clear yeah the the concept of dealing with things by yourself it's like you can but why would you you know (laughs) right it's just like why and and I think again it's a very kind of like individualistic thing to like To try and prove oneself, but I think you know that that in itself feels a bit skewed because you know I think you have to fundamentally realise that it's not really about you. And if you let the idea go that it's very much about you, if you start kind of focusing on everyone else and how it affects other people, and see what kind of all connected in a lot of ways. So if it affects you, it affects someone else, and it affects someone else, it affects another person as well. You start thinking of it in a more of an interconnected way. You lose that kind of that need to. Just sustain yourself, or just kind of focus on yourself. I think that brings a lot of like love and a lot of acceptance. Once you let go, it's a bit more uh, relaxing. I think maybe that's not quite the right word, but um, it, <laughs> it feels that it feels less daunting. No, knowing, yes. knowing that that actually it's not you doing stuff for other people. It's like yes, you are, but you're all doing stuff for each other, and you're all working together at the same time. I think there's a comfort in that.
3: Well, I think that's part of what makes fusion so powerful, right? Because it also rejects the notion. That there's any such thing as being a solitary being, right? Like you are always part of something else, right? So Stephen exactly. and, and Connie are Stephen and Connie, but they're also both Stevani, and they're both not Stevani unless they're together. And I think that concept is just so fascinating to think about. Like, how do we owe each other these commitments, right? Like, how is it not just an opportunity for us to help one another, but really seeing oh my God, like, I'm never okay if you're not okay, right? Like, I'm never going to be able to be free unless you're free. Yeah. And that's exactly. a very different conversation. And I think, man, this fucking show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like, okay, what direction do I take this idea? I don't know. Let's find out together. <laughs> okay. So, like, who's who are some of your favorite gems from Steven Universe?
5: My favorite gem is a fusion gem. It's Opal. Is, oh. um, who's power and Amethyst.
3: I love Amethyst. She oh, is my favorite
5: giant woman.
3: Oh uh, Have you gotten there yet,
5: Sarah? Nope. No. Uh, <laughs> yes, you I'm are sorry. in for a treat. Oh, whatever. She is Sarah such a knows. treat. She is such a treat. She's a delight.
4: Yeah, I really like all of the main characters as we're first introduced to them. Like, I think that they're all really interesting. I like that that's not the end of the story. All of the characters seem like you pretty much just told me. (laughs) But it seems like everybody is kind of branching out into new ways of togetherness and things like that. And that's something that I think is super, super interesting because it's like, But what is this character whenever they are under these circumstances with these people, Mm -hmm. you know? So just even having that fluidity of characters is so uh, ingenuitive because, you know, we're so used to just having these very staid archetypes, right? So I think that that's something that's been really interesting for me as well is just kind of watching how, like, the characters are obviously going to start branching out into new things. Yeah, I really enjoy that. What do you all know about how the show came together? Because I don't know that much about that. So I would love to hear a little bit more about it.
5: I don't know too much. I know that Rebecca Sugar worked on Adventure Time Mm -hmm. and a lot of the songs that feature on Adventure Time, um, she did. Um, So I think they pulled quite a few people from that production when, maybe not necessarily when it was done, but they pulled quite a few people. Um, from Adventure Time to work on Steve and You. But beyond that, I don't know that much, really.
3: I know a little bit about the idea origination, but that's about for production about what I know, too. I know that part of what uh, Rebecca Sugar was trying to do was write a story for her younger sibling to make it clear, I believe younger sibling, that it, that uh, you can just be who you are and be loved, like for your gender fluidity, I believe. I don't know the exact identity of her younger sibling, but also Rebecca Sugars uh, identifies as a non-binary woman. And so I know that she wanted to grapple with how do we represent non-binary women? And that's why the gems all use she, because they're all non-binary women and they're a society of non-binary women. And so I know that that was part of what she wanted to do. And then I know she wanted to also grapple with the legacy of animation, particularly in the film, which you can tell in the way that Spinell is super cartoony is, is another way that I, Sugar was trying to grapple with like that legacy of animation and how particularly like female or queer coded characters, but also like how the body is treated in those instances and how, you know, there's so much hyperviolence in a lot of our old cartoons. And she wanted to grapple with like, what does trauma actually mean? So I know that some of the, those are some of the thematic roots, but as for, yeah, for the production, I really don't, I don't know. Now I'm like, oh gosh, should I go Google this? Maybe I'll Google it.
4: I don't think you have to worry about it too much because that kind of tells me a little bit about what I was wondering. Also, I was just thinking how funny it must be to be like, go from Adventure Time, which is already in and of itself a pretty gay cartoon, (laughs) and to be like, and now we're in Steven Universe territory. This is literally the gayest.
5: (laughs) Yeah, it can only get gay from here, I guess.
4: (laughs) Yeah,
3: I, I feel like Rebecca Sugar was like sitting in her room Eyes closed, going. Hmm. Where can I up the queer? Hmm. <laughs> you know what? Garnets a fusion. Sorry, Sarah. And that will be that part. Really I, know. Pow- I know. I know. I figured you did because I think we've talked about it before. But yeah, I think that that's how I picture the show coming about. Like, uh, what's the gayest thing I could put on TV?
5: And now we have Steven Universe. <laughs> we've all, yeah, we've been blessed. So
3: lucky. So lucky. You know, I I also like the way that the series has, they introduce a non-binary character in season one with Stevani, But then what I love is that they're like, that's not enough, right? Because that's a supernatural character. That's a half alien character. That's a, not a human based in this world. And then they introduce Shep in Mm -hmm. Future, voiced by India Moore, who is a non-binary trans person. And It's like they ask themselves in every season and at every uh, juncture, like, how can we up the queer in a more inclusive and robust way? And I think that's pretty, I mean, it would be easy to create something that queer and be like, but it's so queer. And then I think they they were like, but is it queer enough? And the answer to that question at all times is no, because nothing can be queer enough. So, man, Steven Universe, I think it changed my life.
5: (laughs) Yeah, same. But very much, yeah, definitely the same. Because I feel like as well, like, I'm not sure that many people appreciate how hard it must have been to have a network show like that, a children's show specifically, and be like, yep, here are all these kind of like queer characters. Here they are. You know, I think it must have been quite hard to do. And I think the show's definitely kind of opened the way a bit for shows like she and Dead End Year that will be coming next year in broke new ground and covered a lot of ground actually in a way that I think you know animated shows owe a lot to but it must have been so hard to do really I think because people don't quite understand how involved I guess um kind of like executives are it's quite easy I think for or for shows to maybe not necessarily get picked up or get a bit of the way and then be rebuffed or change a lot because they've had to kind of fit into what especially what people think children's tv should be. Mm-hmm. So it it really is quite a feat in a lot of ways to have a show that is so groundbreaking and unapologetically so as well.
3: Well, I know that I think on re-airings they actually cut the first kiss between Ruby and Sapphire. We see yes. yes, and I, I know that this. yeah. So you're right. I mean, they Rebecca Sugar and her team grappled with how do we fight for the representation we deserve without like getting our show canceled, right? <laughs> like, and that's that's a hard wait. You know, we were talking to. I think it was Anthony Oliveira, and he really made me think about the fact that he was like, you know, so often creators get criticized for queer coding instead of having outright queer characters. And even Shira got this criticism, which blew my mind because I was like, what's coded here? (laughs) This is all just very gay. And, uh, you know, he was like, but that's so often creators fighting within a system that doesn't want to have queer representation. And so they're doing literally the most that they will publish or that they will air. And it can feel like often queer creators are not doing enough. And and it's just amazing that, you know, A, it sucks that we turn on each other and don't understand that context. So I've tried to really keep that in mind more. But B, I think it's pretty incredible that, that Steven Universe is as queer and unapologetically, like you said, so. I mean, it's also trans in a way that I haven't seen in anything I've, I've never seen in any media maybe outside of Pose <laughs> which you know amazing but like really truly like the, the way that Steven grapples with who he is and what it means to be a person and what it means to be this person who inherits the trauma from his family who is now responsible for it in some ways there's this great scene at the beginning of Steven Universe Future where someone goes who are you and he says well that used to be a complicated question." <laughs> And a complicated answer for me, but now I know. And I thought that was just such a sweet embrace of of his identity. I don't know if you all have seen it, but Sugar also wrote a children's book called The Tale of Stephen, and it's an accompaniment for the Stephen Universe series finale, Change Your Mind. And it's a children's book told from Stephen's perspective, White Diamond's perspective. I think also maybe Yellow and Blue as well. And it's this conversation where again White repeats her argument of. If you won't be yourself, I'll make you be yourself. And Steven's like, no, I am myself. What are you trying to make me be? And it's just such a, a fundamentally trans argument that like, this is myself, that I'm not something that you think I am, but I am this person. Fuck, that's in an animated series. That's in a children's book. Like what is happening? <laughs> that's so
5: incredible. I know, it's so good. It's yeah, this level of like authority being like, you are not what you're supposed to be and I will make you so. And it's, and you know, it's just like, that's impossible. That's impossible for you to do because I am. Yeah. That's like such a great thing about it. And I think Steven goes through like so many trials because he is essentially just trying to combat a system that is like inherent. So he, you know, the the family trauma that he's inherited is systematic. So, you know, we talk about kind of like things like toxic masculinity kind of being ingrained in people and, Um, society kind of affecting you in a lot of ways. And I think Stephen literally holds those things within himself because, you know, he's essentially trying to combat the legacy of his mother. So he's kind of fighting it, but also trying to reform it at the same time as well and introduce kind of new ways of thinking and being. And that's that's so hard to do. And I think there were lots of critiques maybe early on in the series because people were like, oh, like he's reacting like such a kid. And it's like, yeah, like that's because he is a kid. But also it's like, yeah, there's so many queer kids, trans kids that do have to confront these systems that don't want to allow them to be. And, you know, he deals as best he can, you know, better than I bloody would anyway. Better than um, the gems do. Yeah, exactly. You know, (laughs) than the almost adults that he lives life with, you know. But it's also great that he's a kid because he's like, well, there has to be a different way. Because I think, you know, with the gems, they're very much like, you know, we were in a war. You don't know what it was like. This is the way things have to be now. And he goes, no, you know, he, he goes, that can't, that can't be right. So I think it's perfect having a show like that and having it be a kid's show and having a kid as a protagonist, because they can understand more than most that things just aren't locked in stone. Like, yes, you can learn from experience, but that doesn't mean that there can't be change and there can't be reform. Mm. So it was integral that um, Stephen was a kid dealing with this stuff because... Yeah, it's, it's not as if kids don't have to deal with hard things, especially queer kids, you know. They have it very hard and they have to come to terms with a lot of things, but they also still have to have that hope in them that things will change. You know, otherwise, what's the bloody point?
3: I think that speaks to intergenerational queer community too. Like, it's important that Stephen has the gems to protect him, literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. right? To cultivate him, to support him, to say, Stephen, we love you. You know, like to just love him. That's really important to his development as an individual. And in turn, it is really important to their development as individuals and as a society that he draws a line and says, no more. You know, no more of this. I'm not going to go try and kill the diamonds. I'm going to go talk to the diamonds. And everyone's like, don't do that. You're a baby. And he's like, no, we have to try something different. There's just such fundamental hope in that, right? To yeah. The the audacity to try again in the face of everything. and and that's so much of what I see in the show, you know, when, when future comes around and, or when the, when the film co- starts and they, they sing that song like, everything's perfect. We're in the future. Everything's amazing. La, la, la. And you're like, yes, stop the movie now, because I know that's not going to yeah. stay. You're like, this is great. <laughs> and then it's like, but that's the message, right? Like, that's the message of the film in particular is like, of course, there's another battle. There's always going to be another battle, whether it be internal or external healing our trauma, healing the trauma that's been done to others, that will always happen. I sometimes get disillusioned that the fight is still continuous, and I'm, I'm not even old enough to be disillusioned. But, you know, like, you're like, ah, fuck, are we having this conversation again?
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: it's like, yes, because we're going to keep fucking having it as long as we have to to move things for some people and hopefully for all of us. For me, the the moment that was so personal that I think— Help me heal probably more than anything is actually change your mind, the special at the end of the the first series. Mm.
1: He goes
3: through this whole thing, he confronts the diamonds, he's trying to help him, he's trying to get him, blah, 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 blah. And then we get to the end and he he sits on the beach and he's with the gems with Garnet, Pearl, and Amethyst. And he said, Hey, I wrote a I wrote a song. And they're like, oh, let's hear it. And it's this very short song that is like, I don't need you to respect me. I respect me. I don't need you to love me. I love me but I want you to know you could know me if you change your mind. And that was the moment that I understood how I felt about my family that didn't embrace and care about my queerness. I don't yeah. give a fuck what they think. I don't. But if they wanted to, if they wanted to grow, if they wanted to be more, I'd be happy to let them into my life. But I honestly had never put the words to it, and 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 it was And when that happened, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just freed. I'm freed from trying to care what you think about me. And I'm freed from trying to save you from your own homophobia, your own internalized hatred, the ways that you have put the binary on yourselves that are suffocating you. Those are your problems, man. But if you want to talk, you want to come know me, you want to experience the liberatory feeling of community, I'm with you. But I can't hurt myself to save you. And that, I was like, oh my God, this little, little baby on this beach playing his little ukulele, singing about his evil fascist family from the stars. Just like, help me heal so much. Yeah, it's such
5: it's such a great show for that. And I think that's the reason why so many people of all ages love it, because you're, you'll be sitting there like watching an episode and you'll be like, fucking hell, this has got, this is like, it's hit me like very personally. Like, you know, when... Um, the classic episode where you where everyone finds out Garnet is a fusion and um she sings uh stronger than you and the line um uh! yeah it's so good right the line I am a conversation I feel like hits so many people because you know that in itself feels like such a queer thing as well it's like you you aren't just one thing like you're mixed up of so many things and you're I think queer people have to yeah you have to kind of talk to yourself consist like regularly consistently because even if you know one day you're like, oh, uh, I'm a lesbian, and then you're like, actually, I'm probably bisexual, and then you go, actually, I'm probably pan- pansexual, and then you go, actually, I'm not a woman at all, or you know, and it's like you, you you realize that once you disregard kind of gender and sexuality as you know it, you realize that it's it's an ongoing process, and you continue to talk to yourself about it because yeah, it is it's an ongoing conversation that you have with yourself, and you realize like yeah, again, we go back to like you're not a static thing, like you. Again, you, you're consistently uh, changing, even in these like little, minute ways. So it's like, yeah, again, very much knowing that you're an amalgam of so many different things. And I think, like, uh, yeah, it's such a good thing about the show, just fusions in general, knowing they're just, they're mixed up of so many different cool things and like different beings. I think is really great.
4: Because it reflects on how you change over your lifetime too, right? Yeah. Like, so, so much.
3: is the love of my life I love this podcast so much I will be still doing this podcast when I am dead I'll be doing it on a different frequency it will be kind of weird but you know you'll also be dead probably so you can join me there oh or you'll have a Ouija board oh yeah Ouija board you can tune in that way that one won't need to be funded because I won't be eating or living indoors but this this one I live indoors and I eat do you live indoors and eat? Oh god, yeah, you just reminded me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ooh, turns out these walls aren't free. And so we really want to keep making this podcast for forever. The way that we're going to be able to continue doing that is to have your support. There are a lot of ways you can support us. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at @bitchesoncomics. on Comics. You can rate and review us. But the strongest, most helpful thing you can do is become a patron. We have patrons at all levels. So you can join us at $2, you can join us at $20, you can join us at a million dollars. If you can join us at a million dollars, we're going to donate all of that money to help other people. But we appreciate that you're, you know, redistributing some of your wealth. So you know what? Find us, we're at patreon.com slash bitchesoncomics. Not only can you support us, but when you do become a patron at any of those levels, you get cool perks. You get reviews of more comics. You get lists of more comics. You get playlists to go with comics. We're talking comics, pop culture, books, movies. We're doing it all.
4: If somebody donates a million dollars, I want to keep 5,000. Okay, Sarah, you can keep 5,000. I need a car. That makes sense. Okay, thank you, everybody.
0: As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch.
1: Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were, and it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But...
4: Because Steven Universe inspired you, and you are working on animation now, correct?
5: Yes. So I'm working as a production assistant on uh, a new animated show, Dead India, which is coming out in 2021. It's created by Hamish Steele, so it's based on Hamish's graphic novels. I was the editor of book two of those graphic novels, so yeah, it's pretty fucking cool to be working on the show um, mm-hmm. and just to seeing how that process works because most of my career has been in books and um, the last uh, few years have been in comics specifically so um, I think you know a while back I was kind of like do I go into comics or do I go into animation I picked comics because it was the closest to books so it felt a bit more natural in that sense so this is <laughs> the first time I've been kind of yeah very much in the throes of animation and figuring out how that works but yeah it's such a cool show that um, the lead Barney is a trans man and that's really great and The majority of the characters on the show are very queer. Hamish will attest to this, Um, so I don't feel bad. I I don't think I can talk too much about it, but I think if I said that, he would two thumbs up. He would fully fully endorse me saying, like, everyone is
3: gay. (laughs) Well, and it's about a group of people who work at, like, a horror-themed theme park?
5: Yeah, they work at a theme park, and so the main characters specifically work at Dead End, which is the haunted house bit of the theme park. So the, the premise is essentially is that the haunted house is um, actually a portal to hell and a bunch of demons keep uh, popping up out of the portal. So What's it's not about, to
3: love? It's yeah, like Buffy at a, at a theme park. And I love that. That's
5: yes, a it's, it's, it's
4: more queer.
3: High
5: camp, <laughs> yeah. high horror, um, mm, all, that, all, that, all that good stuff.
4: That's so exciting. Yeah, that's really exciting. I'm beyond stoked. And I was kind of just wondering, as a production assistant, that's like a little bit different than like showrunner or something like that. But do you have uh, ambitions to kind of like just follow animation for a bit?
5: Yes, I do. It's just, yeah, because I just, I love it so much. I'm so interested in it. So for me, it's very much about learning. I think I have realized over the last year or so that um, I'm not super interested in like a career, in a sense, in that concept of kind of like climbing in a way I'm just focusing on things that I that I like and trying to work yeah. on things that I like and I enjoy and just seeing where you know where that goes but sometimes when you when you make your passions a job and then suddenly um, they become markers of kind of your your self-worth in a way it's like if I do well at this job then I'm I'm doing well as a person or I'm a good person I think you know I try and separate that a little bit so yeah I'm doing it Not for now, but I'm doing it because, you know, I really love it and I'd love to learn more about animation and, you know, I'm trying to see if I can mesh kind of my passion for editing as well and doing a bit more writing these days as well. That's like a a little goal for this year and next year. So it could end up that I think I'd quite enjoy, you know, writing for an animated show. Um, That
4: would be so amazing.
5: um, That's very down the line though. So.
4: You're like, well, I have to be like a production assistant first, but someday probably I'll just have my own show.
5: <laughs> um, <laughs> being, a production, being a production assistant is great because you get to see like the entire layer exactly. of land. You're talking to every single department. So yeah, if you're in your own department, it's very focused. But in production, it's like across the board because it's a lot about kind of scheduling and managing. A lot of, kind yes. of interpersonal communication. So you really do see it from um, beginning to end.
4: I've always heard that, that like production assistant is like the job to learn <laughs> because you're learning all of the jobs or exactly. at least somewhat and how they like kind of fit together. So yeah. that is really exciting. That's so fun. And it sounds like such a fun project to work on. Yeah,
5: it's, it's such a great show. And like like I said, like working on, like seeing how it's developed from a graphic novel to a, to a show as well, has been like super fascinating as well. Just to see right. the, the mechanisms of even like how that how that works and um hamish isn't he's an absolute dream um so we so we became friends when i became his editor and um we never looked back um, <laughs> so, so we're now frequent collaborators um but you know he's put his absolute heart and soul into this and it is very much his kind of his love letter to the queer community um Aww. so yeah it feels it feels very kind of groundbreaking and game changing so it's great to be involved with something like that a show that again like centers queer people. Very deliberately and very unapologetically.
4: Yeah, cannot wait. Also, you do editing of comics. I do. Yeah. So you have one that you're working on right now, right?
5: That's being kickstarted? Yes. So Croc and Roll, which is created and written by Hamish. um, Yeah. And it's being illustrated by George Williams. That's a very fun one. It looks
4: really fun, yeah.
5: Yeah, it's about gay crocodiles rocking (laughs) out. Hamish originally called it Cock Sucking Crocs Who Rock. <laughs> <laughs> but he wanted it to be a bit more child friendly.
4: Yeah,
5: I, like, I guess yeah, that's fair. <laughs> crock and Roll felt like a good compromise.
3: I hope in his heart <laughs> he still calls it that
5: because that's oh, amazing. Yeah. At every single like interview or podcast he does, he will mention that it was called Cock Sucking <laughs> <laughs> so <the> <laughs> and Roll. The legacy lives on, and <laughs> it's it's a, it's true. It's an it's an accurate byline. It is. <laughs>
4: I love it. I was just going to ask how uh, you came to be interested in comics. Was that something that you were raised with? Or have you been reading comics for a long time? I think I did the thing
5: everyone did at 16, where they bought Watchmen, they bought <laughs> Black Mirror, <laughs> they bought one Frank Miller, and you just sat there and you read them. So I think I did that, yeah, at about 16. Um, and then And then it branched from there but I I tended to keep to the kind of the big two just because Mm -hmm. I didn't really know any better. Um, So um, I read a lot of the new 52 and then it was only as I got older that I realized I was like, oh, there's like more than superhero (laughs) comics. (laughs) Because you're not led to believe otherwise. I was like, oh, there's there's more things. So, you know, I picked up Persepolis um, Uh, and that was really great. And I think, yeah, it's so good. And then from there, I progressed to, um, yeah, looking at more kind of indie comics. And I never look back, actually. So really now, mostly what I read and mostly what I edit is kind of a indie graphic novels so or like very indie comics. Not that I don't love superhero stuff, but it's always going to be around and it's always going to have an audience. True. Working with a creator on a very niche graphic novel, I think, has become something I'm very dedicated to now.
3: I'm also an editor and I... I uh, have lots of things I could say, but I want to hear from you. What do you like about editing in particular?
5: Oh, that is very easy. It's that I don't have to do any of the work. Editing is a great job, but it's like, you know, it's like someone comes to you with a problem and it's essentially your job to help them find a solution. And I think that that in itself is kind of one of the joys of editing. It's like you're helping someone get to where they need to go. Because if you're the one kind of making it, you're very much, you can't, sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees. So Mm. you're essentially there to help someone get to where they need to go. And I think that's one of my favourite things about editing. It's like someone gives you a bunch of pieces to a puzzle and you just have to help them piece it all together. You know, I've always been drawn to writing like in terms of kind of like words. And I've always been drawn to illustration, I think early on, like when I just finished university, I was like, oh my God, you can combine these things together. (laughs) So so it's very much kind of like, um, comics, uh, magazines. I used to work as an editorial assistant for Titan Books, working on like art and making of books, like art and making of like, uh, games and TV shows. So again, you know, I've always really liked the double medium. So having the two together. So with comics, it felt like a great way to, um, smoosh all my passions together and just be of assistance. I don't know, people always, always like, oh, you're going like, to write something? And for the longest time, I was like, absolutely fucking not. <laughs>
1: like,
5: <laughs> no way. Um, because it's hard. It's, it's hard to write a graphic novel. It's even harder to draw a graphic novel. So it's just, it's, I guess it's me just trying to contribute to a medium that I love in in the way that I think I would be of most help. I don't think I would push the medium further by writing my own stuff, really but I think I can help
3: people along their way. Well, and Sarah and I talk all the time about like, what fucking editor let this comic go across their fucking
5: <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: screen? You know, because it's like, we really do need people who are editing, who think about how things come across. Frequently, I will be working with a, a white creator and I'll be like, why have you presented this black character this way? Yeah. Do you understand what you're saying? And they'll be like, oh my God, no. And I'm like, I don't think you I mean, I don't, I don't know yeah, if you're it's bad. Of right right and i don't know if you're a bad person i'm not gonna assume you're a bad person based on this piece of writing but i do think you need to deal with the racism that's showing up because you're a white person in a racist society we don't think about how writing is in so many ways dealing with our subconsciouses we're putting so much on the page and we're like this is just how people talk and someone's like that's not how anyone i know talks and you're like wait a second this is my issues great perfect so I do think you're right. Like editors have this capacity to come in and say like, oh, let's parse out this piece here. Like what's happening? What's not working here? I used to always say that what I loved about editing was uh, I get to find all the problems and then I get to help someone figure out the solution. But like when I'm writing my own stuff and I find a problem, there's no one to help me figure out the solution. Yeah. Right. It's just
4: me and the page. <laughs> exactly. Yeah,
5: ex- yeah, it's definitely like I feel like, you know, Editors are the kind of like last line of defense where you, you do have to take a level of responsibility. Like while it's not your name on something, you have to make sure that the creator doesn't look like a fool. It's it's your job to kind of to make them the best that they can possibly be. So so yeah, and sometimes that that means that you're like, what the fuck is this? Like what is that? <laughs> Explain this. You do have to call people out sometimes, but you know it's always for their own good and for society's own good.
4: Yeah, for society's own good, because that happens—I mean, we see that all of the time, where—I mean, especially in comics, almost, but, like, you know, other authors, for instance— Stephen King, where it's like you just make it to a certain point, <laughs> they become famous enough, and then it's like they choose their editors, and their editors are people who won't call them out. And so you just see them making these blatant, glaring mistakes in their writing, and they just do it again and again for the rest of their career. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anybody's ever read a Stephen King book and been like, Yeah, this needed to be 2,000 pages long. Like, <laughs> the, it's like you, maybe somebody should have told you about the 500 pages that were just you going off about your own personal biases you know and stuff like that so I always think that editors do so much work and I just hope to god that I never make it to a place where I'm like I'm gonna choose my best friend editor who will never tell me when I'm wrong or something like (laughs) that because I mean you know as he is my best friend editor, but like also will tell me when I'm wrong, you know? So I, yep. I think that editors are very, very important. I do have a best friend editor.
5: Um, her name is Noel. She'll probably be under
3: this. I love Yay. you. Hi, She's shout an out. We love you too. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. the
5: best. Good. She is the best. Um, but yeah, I mean, frequently, half our conversations are like, this is garbage. If you need to fix this, this is not good. But you know, <laughs> you, you, need someone, you need someone to send it to you. Especially sometimes yes. when you know, you're like, is this bad? And then they go, it is, yes. <laughs> you just need someone to, to say that to you. But at the same time, you go, is this, is this good? And they go, yeah, it's fucking amazing. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not all, it's not all bad times.
3: Yeah. yeah.
5: You do need a level of critique, especially when you're producing art that's going out into the world. And especially in comics as well, which is such a, still such a small community as well, I think. Because it's, it's not necessarily new, but I feel like comics criticism still has kind of a ways to go. And it's still being yeah. kind of comics as a medium still not quite taken seriously. So it feels in a lot of ways that it's still quite fledgling, but it mm-hmm. just means that there's more opportunity to get things right, you know, so, to avoid situations where you have, like you said, like Stephen King's, you know, is it, <laughs> we get to do it properly.
3: Well, whenever I'm trying to explain to a, a writer, especially one who I know is you know, maybe a person of color, maybe queer, you know, really not trying to do harm. I, I will say, listen, my my job as an editor is to mitigate harm. Harm against the author. Like, I can't have you out here showing your ass a because you don't need to be doing that. And B, I don't want my name with someone who's yeah, doing exactly. that. And it's my job to mitigate harm to readers. So I can't let you have a story where your gay character is only there for you to tell us something about the AIDS epidemic. We don't know anything about their life. Like, no, like, don't include them. You know, like, if you can't do justice, don't do it. And I think that's like a an important part of the work. And, and in explaining to people, you know, sometimes we can think of writing, of creating art as like this neutral thing. Like, I'm just telling a story. It's neutral. I'm sure Stephen King sits around thinks, this is not transphobic. This is neutral. I know he thinks that. <laughs> yeah, right. And like and, and we know for a fact that's not how any of this works, right? Like there is no neutral yeah, piece exactly. of art. Like all art has an opinion and a perspective and an argument. It's so important to as we help people move from just straight up writing to creating something that goes to be read by other people, right? Like you're now entering a discourse and saying, I have something to say. Listen to me. And it's like, you may only get one one shot at the mic, you know, and you have to really make sure you're doing something that you're not going to, you know, we all regret things we've written or ideas oh, yeah. we've had yeah, or whatever. Like,
0: sure.
3: like, that's part of the process. But like to, to make sure you're not doing something that you're like, oh, this is my American dirt. I have literally done damage to tens of thousands at least of vulnerable people at the moment in time in which I am publishing this book right like that's an extreme example (laughs) but I don't want to be that person no matter how quote-unquote good my story is or authentic place it comes from or whatever you know
5: yeah exactly but yeah that's so true I've been thinking a lot about comics criticism and what kind of role that plays you know like I said like it, it still feels a little bit fledgling in some ways and knowing that something has kind of, like, a short run, you know, you have to, like, decide whether it's, like, is it worth saying something about this? And, you know, all all this kind of conversation about, like, I don't feel like I'm um, super famous. I don't feel like I have any, like, that much influence or I don't feel like I'm a prominent voice in, like, the comic industry and people using that to kind of uh, shield themselves from critique in a way. You can understand it to an extent, but it does feel quite disingenuous as well because it's just, yeah, not wanting to take responsibility for your art. And it's being consumed by the public.
4: Right. And it's important to note that comic criticism is genuinely a mess. Like, Mm -hmm. there's, you're in a really complicated spot because chances are all of the people that you're writing about are on the same Twitter as you. Mm -hmm. And like, you have really aggressive fandoms coming after you for saying literally anything. Like, you could say really pretty much anything and have people come after you. Um, Kevin Smith
3: like an actual Kevin very
4: Smith whenever white he came him. after oh my god oh yeah my that god. was ridiculous him and his shorts
5: <laughs> it's like you know you should not be talking yeah, yeah
4: why do you have this much time if you're Kevin goddamn Smith to like be like scanning twitter for people saying things that you don't like about you get over it but In comics, you notice there's this old guard of straight white dudes that kind of won't let that go. And, like, they will come after you, you know, if you criticize them. There's a ton of people who have had issues with that. And then not to mention the fact that, like, most comic criticism sites that pay are also corporations <laughs> so mm. it's like they don't usually benefit from you criticizing the people that they're financially in bed with not yes. to say that that's a situation that I'm familiar with but it is and um, <laughs> I, I just think that like it just gets really dicey because you try to be as honest as you possibly can but then there's always these ulterior motives and things like that and so it does Get really difficult to be honest, you know, about things that you think. And, you know, there's only like five publishers, <laughs> like, and they're all kind of sketchy, you know? It's like we just have so many things when we're talking about comic criticism and who's actually allowed to do it. There's definitely people who. You know, women write about comics is that website that's just been doing a lot of really honest stuff, but they're almost the only ones that are able to just kind of be open because they specifically choose writers that aren't really looking to have jobs in comics. Yeah. And people who just want to be critics, which is really great, but then like they, you know, there's no money. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
4: It is a convoluted situation when you talk about comic criticism, because there has been works that are just profound, brilliant works of comic criticism. Like, that's definitely a thing. But that is not what is focused on when you talk about comics criticism. Somebody's like, oh, you mean like CBR? And it's like, no, that's really just kind of a website full of commercials, right? Like, mm,
3: yeah.
5: so,
4: yeah, it's complicated.
5: Yeah, and it is because I think, yeah, the community is so small. So, you know, yeah, right. chances are like you've met someone a con, or it's a friend of a friend or it's like your actual friend. And it's it's tricky because you're never quite speaking about stuff objectively, or you are, but then suddenly that's a problem.
4: Yeah. And it's proven to be a very hostile to criticism field. Like the people who are criticized tend to lash out and they might ruin your chance of working (laughs) ever again, you know? Like you really never know what direction it's going to go in. And so, yeah, I would say that there's a really high level of aggression towards comics critics, people who are just working as critics. But then comic critics often become comic creators. That is something that is also really strongly frowned upon, you know, and stuff like that. So it's a limiting career in a way. There's no real way to advance (laughs) in comics criticism. So tons of people leave it. So you end up with this incredibly young group of comic critics, and that's good But it's also, you know, people aren't really allowed to build on the things that other people have done. And yes, it's a
5: mess. (laughs) It's a shame as well, because it is needed to push the field. And yet it's just an environment that doesn't foster it or encourage it at all, which is absurd.
4: It really cancels you out in a lot of ways, too, because I think that critics are, in general, usually the hated (laughs) people of any industry. But yeah, in comics, people really want you to be only a cheerleader or only a villain, you know, and it's like you really don't have any room for recourse outside of that. And it's kind of a messed up situation. And we sort of as a pod steered clear of that by being like, we're here
3: to tell you about good things. If there's a bad thing, we're going to interview somebody and they'll tell you about the bad thing. And then we don't have to like wade into that same sort of level. Although Sarah and I both, Sarah much more so than I as writers have done some comic critique, but yeah, it's not a very well-supported venture, and it's hard, right? Like, it's really hard to critique a work that is, like you were saying, multimedia. And then people are like, you said one bad thing, burn in hell. And I'm like, if I wanted to be told to burn in hell, I would talk to my family.
5: That's far too relatable.
4: <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. Too real. <laughs> Well, not to totally derail and just talk about what sucks about being a comic critic. Yeah, I don't know. I'm excited. I'm glad that you're doing editing work, first of all. I'm really glad that you're getting into animation stuff because we always need people pushing this stuff forward. And yeah, I think that comics criticism hopefully maybe someday will be able to kind of evolve out of like where it's at. And of course, once again, not to denounce anybody who's doing great work, because tons of people are. Hopefully it'll just go forward in a better way, as I guess you were saying a little bit.
5: I think it will. And like you guys do like really great work. And like you said, Women Write About Comics is like really great as well. So there are these like pockets of good criticism coming up. And I think, yeah, I think a lot of it is about just kind of like holding the line in, in a way. But it must be like really exhausting. Because like you said, it kind of only works if you're not super invested in a way.
1: But like, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of
5: my, like I do some kind of graphic novel reviews, but they sit on an art site specifically. And I only ever write about things that I like. So it's this kind of like tiny little pocket of like, oh, like it's me talking for 500 words about like a comic that I really, really like. And, you know, that's kind of easy to do in a way because, yeah, it doesn't deal with any form of backlash of like speaking ill of something totally yeah which you can do
3: I also work in queer media in books a little bit Mm -hmm. and something that I've realized is most of the people I'm writing about are like independent queer creators paying for shit out of their pocket and I'm like if I hate your shit I'm just gonna ignore it (laughs) yeah (laughs) I'm not gonna try and ruin your life I like pointing, at, you know, if, if I love something, but there are still issues, like I'll include that when I'm talking about it. But by and large, I'm like, you know, I don't need to make anyone's life hell. We were talking to a couple of independent film creators and we, we were off the record and sort of said something similar. And they were like, wow, that's really nice. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I just don't feel like anybody needs extra hardship, especially yeah. when your your platform is so small. Right. Like I'm not mm-hmm. trying to send trolls at anybody, right? Like I'm yeah. you know, I'm I'm here to help, not to hurt, is the way I look at
5: it. So yeah, definitely agreed. And I think it's that uh, people don't really think that you are doing that because you do care very much about the community. So you mm-hmm. know if someone has an indie comic that you're like, well th- this isn't my favorite thing, but you know they it's by an indie press and they're only going to get like a 2K run. It's like what is the point of you writing a bad review? Because someone Googles that book and your review pops up if there's not that much criticism going on around that book, yours will be like what one of two or three reviews. So it's like 50% or, you know, a third of the reviews would be bad based on yours. It just, it just seems pointless. But then at the same time, you know, it's like, do we not want to like foster debate and discussion?
3: What level do you have to be at for the adage of all press is good press to actually click into effect? Yeah. How many copies are you selling before? Like, Actually, regardless of what I say, it's helpful in some way, or at least it's helpful to the field, like you were saying. But, you know, something Sarah and I talk about all the time is, like, we really love comics. Like, I actually love the form so much that in most things I can find something redeeming. Not comics gate, duh. But, you know, like, if I read an independent creator's work and I'm like, you know, I don't get it, but this line work is great. I'm going to say, I don't get it, but this line work is really great. And the quote I'm going to pull is, this line work is really great, right? (laughs) Like, I don't know. I really do just love this format so much. And again, I think women write about comics, like Sarah was saying, like you said, they're doing just exceptional work. So I'm like, I'll send you to the heavy hitters. I'm here for like fluff, you know, I'm here to have a good time, people. (laughs) So that's how I look
5: at it. Yeah, for a good time, a long time. (laughs)
3: So, okay, speaking of, what are you looking forward to in the coming, you know, I know obviously Dead India is going to be taking up a lot of your time, but you also hinted like, I'm writing something. Like, what else is going on? Talk to us or what can you tell us about what you're writing?
5: Well, we've got issue three funded now for Rock and Roll, so I'll potentially be writing an issue. We'll see how it goes because I'm still editing it, but I'll be potentially writing an issue or co-writing at least an issue of Rock and Roll, which would be pretty fun. So, yeah, that would be, that'll be quite cool. And that will be kind of, it's you know, it's great collaborating with people that you you know and trust and that you know will also hold you to a standard as well. So in, in the same way that I make sure that Hamish's work is held to a standard, he'd do the same for me as well. And George is absolutely fantastic as well. Like, his work is really incredible. So it's great to be working with really cool people, really cool queer people on, like, a very cool, fun comic. I miss working on fun stuff. You know, I used to work at No Brow Press and that was um, not a
4: great time.
5: It was just very intense.
4: I've heard a lot of things about that. (laughs)
5: Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a difficult place to work and it took a lot out of me and it took a lot of my joy for comics out of me as well. And it's just kind of having some time away from that and yeah, falling back in love with comics because like you said, it's such a great medium. It's, It's incredible. So yeah, falling back in love with it and wanting to work on something that's kind of like fun because I think we have a lot of kind of you know angsty works or very intense works because you know especially when it comes to very kind of niche indie comics it's like this is stuff that someone's been working on for like years and it's an idea that they've had forever so you know they're always very kind of emotional in a lot of ways and that's great and we need to keep fostering those at the same time we also need to foster stuff that's just kind of like very fun and very silly and very ridiculous because it's just as valid as the very kind of like intense emotional stuff. So it's great to be working on, yeah, it's just like a fun gay comic where nothing really bad happens and it's quite ridiculous and it plays a lot on eighties kind of like very campy tropes. So it's very kind of like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Sailor Moon, that type of action animals doing fun things in the human <laughs> world. So yeah, that's very cool. So that's, you know, that's something I'm enjoying working at the minute
3: what Um, a pitch yeah (laughs) Yeah. I'm like yeah uh uh uh-huh 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 check 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 check
5: check (laughs) check it's so fun I think you know especially now you just like we do need fun things as well I think yeah we very much need to keep having discussions about everything that's going on in the world but I think we are allowed to enjoy things as well yeah so it's nice to be working on something it's very fun very cool very queer
4: you brought up Sailor Moon and TMNT and both of those franchises, they are super fun, but they do address things too. So yeah. it's like Sailor Moon is sad and creepy sometimes. And so it is. I think it you is. can always have a little bit of a mix. Yeah, it's good to have a good have of balance.
3: That is true. Life is all about
4: harmony in whatever way you
3: can find it. Is there anything we didn't talk about? Anything that you wanted to chat about? Any topics?
5: No, I think this has been a really good chat. Oh my God, dream come true. We've covered many things.
3: (laughs) All I've ever wanted is to talk about Steven Universe and how queer it is. I'm so happy.
5: We could do part two, part three.
3: (laughs) Part 40, part 45, (laughs) part 49. Yeah. Yeah,
5: it's such a good show. It's so game changing. It really has changed the face of animation like forever.
3: From what I've heard, Dead Endia in so many ways is a part of that legacy. And like you said, the world is, yeah, we all know. And, hey, what a really great queer horror cartoon is coming out in 2021. I got something to look forward to.
5: It is. It's going to be really good. You guys should have Hamish on sometime. If
4: oh, yeah.
5: If you like. Talking about that gay stuff. We love that. Well, don't we all? It's <laughs> basically
3: the tagline of our podcast, talking about, that gay, stuff. <laughs> talking about uh, that gay stuff. We actually have to change the tagline. We're going to have to, have to do some new branding.
5: Yeah. Uh, Never yeah. not talking about that gay stuff. <laughs>
3: Beautiful. Ayola, thank you. Oh my God, thank you. Thank you for giving so much of your brain time to us, for sharing about like the behind the scenes of being a PA, talking about Mm -hmm. Dead India, Steven Universe being queer, the world. It has just been an absolute delight and my heart is very
5: full right now. Yay, thank you guys for having me. This is lovely. It's always great to talk comics and talk cartoons.
3: a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women so if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations pop culture in general, conventions cosplay, you name it that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it so (laughs) we can't have it spelled out It is B. T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com
4: and yeah remember there's no I'm Bitch if you'd like to support the podcast you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts I'm Sarah Century and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram still Sarah Century on those I'm SE Fleenor. You can learn
3: more about me at com. You can find me on Twitter
4: and Instagram at, at SE underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfire music.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado.
3: We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization.
2: In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast— Learn and be empowered and find inspiration through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Reppin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts.